you glad you have to wear shirts in council chambers? Taxi drivers excluded. This week, we'll be talking about the economy, politics, and power transitions. And recording on September 30th, we'll talk candidates' perspectives on truth and reconciliation. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, or if you're from the active radio show on CBC, Municipally Speaking. Thanks, Rod, for that shout out. Twice. A trend on TikTok making spicy pickled garlic has sent sales for a local pickler's products through the roof. Mojo Jojo Pickles, which has been forced to move several times during the pandemic, has seen an increase in business partly due to the Zoomer social media app. Several local campaigns have taken note, and candidates have started wolfing down garlic and breathing directly into voters' faces to show that they're in the know. As of recording, the new tactic has not managed to decrease youth civic engagement any further. 97% of Alberta Superstore employees have voted in favor of striking, according to the UFCW Local 401. This does not indicate that a strike is coming yet, however, with the union indicating that they'll be using the potential strike action as a bargaining tool to improve Loblaw's offer. However, Loblaws does not appear to be concerned with President Galen Weston saying in a leaked email, quote, Can we just give them another $25 gift card to shut them up like we did with that bread price fixing thing? The Integrated Infrastructure Services Division of the city has released a survey this week trying to assess if it is still fulfilling citizens' needs in the midst of rapidly changing public opinion. Said a manager of the division, quote, During this election season, we're seeing candidates get positive responses to radically different ways of talking about delivering infrastructure, and we want to keep our fingers on the pulse, end quote. The survey should be distributed late next month in time for the new council swearing in. Said the same manager, quote, We want to have answers day one for the new council, so we can know for sure if citizens truly do want to try something so radical and innovative as delivering projects. What was that weird phrase candidates used? Oh, right. On time and on budget. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. And this episode is brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta, offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who you buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. If you switch providers, nothing changes about the delivery of these utilities to your home or business. If you have an existing contract, you're going to want to find out the terms before leaving. If you don't, then it's even easier easier to sign up for Park Power. You, as the consumer, have the choice of who you pay your bills to, so why not choose your friendly local utilities provider? You can learn more at parkpower.ca. So, Mac, we had mentioned off the top that we are recording on September 30th, the new national holiday recognizing truth and reconciliation. It is not an Albertan stat holiday, but I think a good portion of Albertans still got it off to reflect. So given the context of this day, I think it's a perfect time to talk about the election because candidates will have to reflect on reconciliation and have material policy on reconciliation. So I think it's a perfect time to dive into exactly where candidates stand on reconciliation. And the Taproot survey had some questions covering that. Yes, my Twitter feed today was full of candidates making the obligatory statement about today being the national holiday and that they were taking time to reflect, presumably in between door knocking. We did ask candidates about this on the survey. We said, do you support the city's current approach to upholding the spirit and specifics of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's 94 calls to action. And the options we gave them were, yes, I support the current approach. No, the city should do more. 
or no, the city is doing more than it should, or our standard response for candidates, which is that they don't have a position on this issue. And on this question, it's basically split between the first two. About 32 candidates chose that they support the current approach, and 29 said, no, the city should do more. Not to parse the question too deeply, but I remember I was filling out this survey with someone else, and they were getting very angry at me as I looked over their shoulder and corrected them on each of their survey responses. I don't think that's how the survey was supposed to be used with Troy just <laughs> giving proxy opinions. But alas, sure. the person filling out said, no, the city should do more because, you know, they believe in reconciliation. They believe in really building bridges with indigenous communities. And I jumped in and I said, no, no, hold on. Okay. If the question is, do you support the city's current approach to upholding the spirit and specifics of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's 94 calls to action, is it not a little bit racist as a white person to say, you know, I think I know better than the TRC. I know better than these 94 calls to action. Let's do what I want to do instead. Am I parsing this too much, Mac? Well, potentially. I see your point, right? Absolutely. It says spirit and specifics of TRC's 94 calls to action. This was not a weekend exercise. These 94 calls to action are a big deal. Lots of organizations and institutions across the country have committed to them. So we don't want to diminish them in any way. But I think the emphasis of the question is really meant to be on the first part, which is the city's current approach to upholding the spirit and specifics of those 94 calls to action. And we did a story about this back in July. This was right around the time that uh, we were talking about spending, I think it was $250,000 on fireworks on Canada Day. And we, we looked at the city's indigenous framework, which is in the context for this question, and basically found that while we have an indigenous framework, and it's obviously better than not having one, there's still a lot of work ahead of city council on this file. So are you parsing the question? maybe, I would say. At the very least, I look at the response to the questions and I do see in support of the current approach, Aaron Paquette, the uh, only Métis counselor. So not to tokenize him too much, but, you know, maybe he parsed the question too. It seems like something he would do. You know, there's a lot of things we want more of. On this podcast, we've talked a lot about uh, wanting more LRT and better transit service in the city of Edmonton. And in general, almost Everyone agrees with us that more LRT is generally good for our transit system, except critically, and should I say formerly mayoral candidate after announcing <laughs> this, Cheryl Watson held a press conference this week to announce that she wants to put a pause on the Valley Line West LRT. Well, and the press conference was quite misleading off the top because all we got was this news release that says Cheryl Watson will be making an important announcement about her campaign. It was written as if she was about to drop out or something. I guess effectively, <laughs> she's taken herself out of contention for many people with this announcement, but she did not drop out of the race. Instead, she, as you say, announced that she thinks we shouldn't build the Valley Line West LRT. Now, I wasn't able to go to this, but you did, Troy. So what did you find out? Like, why does she think this is important and what would she do instead? The conference, as it was, was basically her reading verbatim from her press release. So... You didn't miss out on a whole lot by not attending. The crux of her logic is that COVID has changed things. People are working remotely more. And there is a study by Statistics Canada that estimates that if we were to transition to full telework capacity, that is everyone who can work from home does, mm -hmm. it could reduce the total number of Edmonton transit commutes in a year by 43.6%. So, you know, that's not nothing. There's a lot of assumptions 
baked into that. <laughs> no doubt. But she says, based on this potential reduction of 43.6%, it does not make sense to spend so much money on the Valley Line West so we need to cancel it. This is the prudent fiscal decision, and this is showing leadership. She even ends the press release with the three words, this is leadership. So she'd rather pay some money, presumably, to cancel contracts because we've already awarded uh, Marigold Infrastructure Partners. We've already put out requests for proposals for the actual vehicles that are going to be on the Valley Line West, like shovels are in the ground. I am next to the construction site every single day things are happening already, right? Yeah. So Dustin Cook from the journal asked that question. He was the only journalist at the press conference that wanted to ask questions. I don't consider myself a journalist. I consider myself a Twitter shit poster, but I also asked <laughs> questions there. But, yeah. you know, he asked the pretty obvious question of, well, aren't there contract cancellation fees that you'd have to contend with to do this? And Cheryl Watson said, yes, but we would prefer to pay those contract cancellation fees and do something else with this other bit of money than to build the LRT and have the LRT. She's essentially saying it's worth paying money to ensure that Edmonton gets absolutely nothing. And I want to add a brief note on that contract cancellation because, you know, the Valley Line West, we hear this number about costing $2 billion. Edmonton isn't paying $2 billion. We're paying the minority of the cost for the line. Edmonton's on the hook for around $450 million of this line. I don't know about you, but if I was the feds or the province and the city unilaterally canceled an in-construction LRT line, I wouldn't front the cancellation fee. I would make the city pay the full cancellation fee. I talked to a couple people who uh, had industry experience and they estimated that around one-fifth of the contract cost is reasonable for a cancellation fee. Really? So it's highly probable that Edmonton could pay about the same amount of money to build or not build Valley Line West. And this is all putting aside for the moment that this is a completely ridiculous idea. Valley Line West is absolutely a project that we need. As uh, Councillor Andrew Knack tweeted about uh, this in response, we should have built this decades ago. Uh, But I do want to mention one other thing about Cheryl Watson's announcement. Did anyone ask her if she's aware that the mayor has just one vote? on council? (laughs) Regrettably, I did not ask that question and no one did. I have to assume she knows that, but we've seen all mayoral candidates do this thing where they say, I will do this thing. Right. Michael Oshry, I will make pet licenses a lifetime fee, even though it costs the city money. Some of these candidates don't seem to realize that if you have a policy that doesn't make sense, you have to get to seven votes. You're not getting to seven votes on Valley Line West pausing because we've already relitigated that back in 2019. And council firmly said no. Yeah, I mean, you might get to seven votes on pet licenses or something, but it's not going to happen on a $2 billion infrastructure project. Unless, I suppose, you have enough people that get elected. I mean, other mayoral candidate who's already been talking about wanting to pause West LRT is Mike Nickel. His slate of candidates presumably feel the same way. We know John Zadick does. So I suppose if you have a wholesale change, it's possible. But that seems very unlikely in Cheryl's case. Yeah, let me posit a hypothetical. Okay, we need Mike Nickel's slate to get elected in order to cancel Valley Line West. And in the case where Mike Nickel's slate gets elected, Cheryl Watson retrieves more votes than Mike Nickel in the mayoral race. I don't think that's happening. No, that doesn't seem likely at all. 
Andrew Knack had some other things to say about this policy announcement. And one of those was all about climate change. He said this is financially and environmentally irresponsible if we were to cancel it now. Uh, and I saw some other commentary on Twitter kind of to the same effect, like, you know, there, there's a candidate forum coming up about climate change. Like, w- how does Watson think this is fitting in with that? And her campaign platform does say to continue emissions intensity reductions of our city buildings and transportation systems through new technologies and processes. Presumably, she has some other newfangled technology in mind besides LRT. So I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention a couple things. And that is one, Cheryl Watson's campaign does have UCP staffers or former UCP press secretary staffers working on her campaign. So, you know, there's a potential connection there as well. The other thing I'll mention is since breaking this story, because I broke it because I was on a Zoom call, I have received several DMs from people formerly involved with the Cheryl Watson campaign where this was the straw that broke the camel's back. I'm told there's a lot of infighting within the campaign and that it is basically in full internal damage control after this announcement. So to say that the campaign is in disarray and grasping at straws, I think is a fairly fair characterization of the situation. And it makes sense looking at Cheryl Watson's history of policy. Well, actually, I wanted, I wanted to ask you about that, Troy, because you've said many times on this show, Cheryl Watson doesn't stand for anything. She doesn't have any policy positions. She was, I think we made fun of her a couple of weeks ago for being first out of the gate to have nothing to announce. <laughs> this was a shockingly like solid policy position to take, isn't it? And I, I will note, when I looked at her website tonight, there is still nothing on the website anywhere about West LRT. And maybe that speaks to the campaign disarray that you talked about. But how do you square that circle? How she had no policy and now all of a sudden she has this really, you know, really firm, weird, way out there policy. You know, I can't. My best guess, and this is going to come out like a joke, but it is my honest to goodness true opinion. I think there's a wheel in her campaign office with random AI generated (laughs) policy positions. And each day she just gives it a spin. And that's what she tweets that day. That is the best and most charitable explanation of this situation. I think the more reasonable situation here is Cheryl Watson is looking at her polling numbers. She's seeing it around the four, 5% range. She's trailing a distant fifth place. And if she's lucky, she could get up to fourth. And she's saying, I don't want to go out like this. I want to take third. So she's trying to steal votes from Austrian Nickel. I think that's my best guess of that's the only way this makes sense, because this isn't a rational, reasonable policy position. This is a tack hard to the right. And I think it's a move of a desperate campaign that's going nowhere. Is it an attempt to position yourself as a more collaborative Mike Nickel? It could be. I think more reasonably, it might be an attempt to position yourself as someone who might be getting a job from the UCP. Mm. If I was doing 40 chest on the situation, I would say, you know, she was with Innovate Edmonton. She got passed over for the executive position there. Uh, She ran for mayor, didn't work out. Maybe she's looking for the next border agency she wants to get appointed to. And we have a province that doesn't like Valleyland West. So maybe she's just you know, scoring some points with the UCP by uh, announcing this policy. Time will tell. And I hope to read it from my phone aboard 
a train on Valley Line West. <laughs> well, you know, you'll have another six years to go, but... <laughs> I know, it's wishful thinking. I'd even take Valley Line South for, for, for right now. So Tubalene is a lot for the Valley Line LRT, for sure, but it's not very big in comparison to the entire city budget, which is something that new candidates will have to grapple with. As an interesting aside, uh, we have a four-year budgeting cycle, and we choose the budget basically right after a new council is elected. It's always, you know, gave me a bit of pause. Shouldn't we let the councillors learn a little bit before they decide where they're locking in all their money? But I digress. <laughs> These decisions are something that councillors are going to have to make when they're elected. And I took a brief look into some of the talk around budgeting and spending. And I think unsurprisingly, it's very austerity based. Tax increases are not on the table basically anywhere in this election. And I think it's very clear because Andrew Knack has said right in his platform that he wants to freeze the budget in 2022 and index any future years to no more than the rate of inflation at maximum. Amarjeet Sohi, who many have argued is the spendiest mayoral candidate, mm -hmm. he's said anytime the budget comes up that any increase to tax rate must be below inflation, which is effectively a cut. So if we're having the most spendy candidates saying we want to cut the budget, I think it does frame the discussion on taxes and budget going into this next election. Yeah, on the Taproot survey, we had a question about this. We said, what do you think the city's main fiscal challenge is? As you point out, not a single candidate said that the city hasn't been willing to raise taxes enough. So tax increases are, are not on the table. A good chunk said the city has limited ability to raise revenues, but the majority were definitely in the city spends its resources inefficiently camp. And that's where you'll find mayoral candidate Amarjeet Sohi. He says city spends its resources inefficiently. Progressive or conservative, spendy or not spendy, everyone is going to say, I want more value for taxes and I want yeah. to find efficiencies. It seems to me that none of them have heard of council's 2% initiative, <laughs> which right. is an ongoing initiative that just directs administration to find 2% of efficiencies all the time. Or, you know, the program and service review and all the other things that have happened recently to try to you know, ring every last dollar out of the programs we have. But it, it leads to an interesting question of should counselors, you know, go line item by line item? This is what I want to spend money on. Is that beneath what a counselor should do? How can a council candidate really talk about something with the scope of our like nearly $3 billion budget in a way that's digestible? It's, it's a hard problem to grok. Yeah, I think this is why priority-based budgeting has been such a big topic of discussion with the the current council. It's an idea where we can focus on the big things. It's kind of like the advice you you get for your own personal budget, right? You know, the argument that if you cut out your $4 latte a day, you'll have so much money is just not a wise thing to spend your energy on when the biggest things you're going to purchase is like a house and a car. If you get those decisions right, you got room in the budget for the other things. And I think council with this priority-based budgeting wants to do a similar kind of exercise, focus on the really big things and not have to have councillors go line by line. There will be some who do, and that's fine, but we want to make sure we get those big decisions right. I will say on this question on the Taproot survey, you know, we tried really hard, as we've talked about in previous episodes, to not have any sort of wishful thinking responses. And the, the response that we've highlighted here, the city spends its resources inefficiently, is probably the most wishful thinking response on the whole survey. Because 
you might believe that, but it's like, show me, where do you think they actually spend it inefficiently? How many of these candidates that answered that option have actually thought of specific programs or services where it's done inefficiently? Yeah. And, you know, there's similar questions about does the city have enough employees? Is it too many? Is it too few? Yeah. And the candidates who said the city has too many employees, which employees are you going to cut? You know, once you ask that follow-up question, some of those answers become a little bit harder to deal with. Definitely. I was looking through candidate websites trying to find someone who I think really nailed the spending question. And I got to say, Andrew Knack blew me out of the water. His growing the economy together platform plank was fascinating to me because it towed the line of making sure that he had concrete, actionable items while also like giving solutions to problems in ways that I hadn't even thought of. It wasn't just, you know, I want to get value for dollars. It was, I want to do this specific thing. One of the specific things he's mentioning is the education property tax requisition. Now, this is the thing where when you get your property tax bill, you have the city's portion and then you have this education requisition, which is about a third of your property tax bill. The city collects that on behalf of the province, remits it to the province, and then it's supposed to be remitted back to cities through things like grants. Grants, of course, are very wish-washy. They can be unsustainable. We think back to things like the MSI grant, which was cut and slashed, and that left cities without sustainable infrastructure funding. So he's proposing a pretty simple red tape cut. Instead of the city collecting this money on behalf of the province to have it administered back to the city through grants and programs, why doesn't the city just collect it and keep the money? It's a good idea. It's a great idea. Instead of, yeah, either that or the other thing we can do to keep that money, which is define a CRL. That's the only other way we're allowed to keep that money, which the province has to approve. Let's just keep it. I'm shocked that this has not come up by the Minister of Red Tape Production. Yeah. And so another proposal that he has, which, you know, for a wonk, this is very exciting, but he's talking about Bill 7, which was a bill that was passed by the province, and it basically expanded provisions in the Municipal Government Act, the act that basically governs cities and allows them to do things. And what it did is it allowed municipalities to offer multi-year property exemptions for non-residential property. It's an okay thing, and it's a good tool for the city to have, but he's proposing that the province amend this to allow it to apply to non-residential properties as well. And the argument here being, if we want to encourage mixed-use development and new high-density development along our transit-oriented lines, when a developer builds a new mixed-use building, say it's got you know five retail bays on the main floor and 60, 70 units above, they're not going to rent or lease all of those units immediately when the building is built. So for the first couple years, while the leases are spinning up, that developer is now paying more than market value for their property because it's paying property taxes for all these units, but these units aren't rented. So it has a cash flow implication and it can make it harder and more risky to build these transit-oriented development. So allowing us to defer the property taxes for a couple of years while they lease the units, that could be a great incentive to build these transit-oriented units. I'm actually not sure I like that idea. Okay. Walk around my street and look at how many bays have been empty for literally years. Years. And now we want to offer developers a tax break to continue to allow their bays to sit empty. I think before the pandemic, there's many times that some of these things could have been filled, but they don't do it for whatever reason. 
I'm not sure I like that one. That one, just where I'm at on 104th Street right now, Troy, that one is just making me think the last thing we need is more empty bays. And then for the developers to actually have to pay less in order to have those empty bays. But do you see what you did right there? You had an informed discussion about policy. Yes. Which is not something you can do when a candidate says, I want to get more value for dollars. Absolutely. Yeah. Andrew Knack, I would love to talk to you more about that because I'm sure actually there's some, you know, real merit to your idea. <laughs> it's just my, you know, where I am right now physically is, is hard to reconcile. But let's talk about it. Let's get into it. Come knock on my door. I can't vote for you, but that's okay. I, I encourage all our listeners to go check out Andrew Knack's website. It's a great, pleasant read and it's nicely designed so it doesn't feel toxic to read at all. But while we're on the topic of Andrew Knack, we said we'd talk a little bit about politics. And I think there was no more political football in this last term than the code of conduct. We had Mike Nickel with three separate sanction hearings for violating the code of conduct. And Taproot asked a question about should city council continue to have the code of conduct in light of all of this? Yeah. And the options were yes. And the current one is working fine. Yes. But the current one is not doing the job. Or no, elections are a sufficient mechanism for governing councillors' conduct. Only one councillor chose that last option. Uh, Tarsi Shindelka in Papasteo said elections are sufficient. The vast majority of candidates chose yes, but the current one is not doing the job. A small number said yes, and the current one is working fine. And among those was Andrew Nack. Why? <laughs> you know, we, we noticed this before the show. I sat here flabbergasted for a couple minutes, just like trying to grok of all the people in the world, the one who was consistently bullied and abused by Mike Nickel and had his staff bullied and abused by Mike Nickel. That was singularly Andrew Knack and Mike Nickel got off scot-free because of it. How can Andrew Knack say, this is fine, this is working? I have no idea. I don't believe that he actually thinks it is working fine. I will I will say my my belief is he chose this option just because he didn't want to cause another debacle or have it used against him by Mike Nichols screenshotting that and then sharing it or something like that. I, I don't know how you could Andrew Knack is an incredibly intelligent counselor. I don't know how he could look at that and think it's working fine. I think the only way I could charitably describe this is trying to get into Andrew Knack's head. You know, he's a very technocratic and he's very like supportive of democracy. He could say, you know, we have a code of conduct and it requires a supermajority of council to sanction. And, you know, council decided not to sanction, but that's the policy we wrote. It's right. it's working fine yeah. because this is the process we laid out. Technically, that's true, but like that's not the spirit of this, I don't think, right? Future Troy joining you from the edit bay once again. We reached out to Andrew Nack for comment on this, and he replied, quote, I think the code is great, but holding ourselves accountable to the code is not working. We don't need to change the code. We just need to do our job, end quote. Yeah, good point there, Andrew. Back to the show. Interestingly as well, though, some of the candidates that said yes, but the current one is not doing that the job are Tim Cartmel and Tony Katarina, who in the sanction hearings repeatedly <laughs> debated that elections are a fine accountability mechanism. We don't need to be here. And yet they didn't select that option. Yeah, weird. It could be if I was being charitable to them because the province requires us to have a code of conduct. So selecting no is an illegal response. Pro tip, Tarsi, you can't not have a code of conduct. <laughs> it's illegal. 
These are just some of the fun we've been having with the Taproot Survey. But you also wrote a post this week about how listeners can have more fun with the Taproot Survey. Yeah, we're really happy with the response to this. We've had more than 7,500 responses. So lots of people getting informed. And I love seeing you know, folks share it on Twitter. They've taken screenshots. They've tweeted at candidates. They've had conversations about issues. It's really great to see all of that happening. There are some ways you can look at the data aside from just your matches. So if you go to the wards page, you can see all the candidates' responses for a particular ward. And you can also go question by question, which is what you and I have been doing the last couple of episodes to see who's responding uh, in which way. You can go question by question and see the entire field. And in case you missed it on the matching page, if you click on the number of matches with any given candidate, you get a head-to-head comparison of your responses and and their responses. So uh, that'll be in the show notes. There's some other ways for you to check out that data as well. And if you've not taken the survey yourself yet, you can do so at taproot.vote slash match. I think... No offense, Mac, but I'm shocked with how well this is working. You know, a part of me was fearful that, you know, you'd get 12, 14 people filling out the survey and it would have been a waste of your entire year. (laughs) Expectations blown. No offense taken. We also didn't think it would be as uh, quite as popular as it has been. It's just down to a lot of hard work, I think. And everybody on the Taproot team has worked hard on this over the last year. And to get almost 65 candidates out of the 85 now to answer, it was an important first step. But now to have so many other people find value and it's just great to see. Well, we're going a little long, but you know what? It's election time. If you don't like it, unsubscribe. No, no, don't. Don't Don't, unsubscribe. Don't unsubscribe. (laughs) Don't unsubscribe. That was that was in haste. Look, I got mad. I got lost my temper. We're friends. We're friends. And Don Iveson is friends with the uh, next council. Uh, he's doing something very interesting. Uh, normally, the mayor writes a transition memo or two to instruct his successor on, here's some important initiatives. Here's my Cliff's notes. Here's the help I bequeath unto you, my successor. Mm-hmm. And he's made the interesting decision to release these memos publicly. Yeah, in his blog post, he said that, quote, in making them public, I hope that they are of use to candidates and voters alike. Whether or not you agree with all of the content, I hope these briefs contribute to a productive discussion about Edmonton's future, end quote. And he released several memos so far. He's got one on supportive housing, one on fiscal policy, energy transition strategy, uh, regional economic development, and city plan, although it's titled The City Plan. Don, drop the the. It's just like ICE District just city plan. So he's written about all of those things. You know, I think if you've been listening to our show over the last couple of years, that shouldn't be surprising that those are the topics that he would pick. I think it's interesting that he put them out there. I've seen a number of candidates specifically mention these things, that they've looked at them. I hope some voters are looking at them, although I can't imagine many people are going to enjoy just spending their time reading transition memos from the mayor. Uh, But I asked you about this, uh, I think last week when we first saw this, and you had a different take on potentially why he's made these public. I mean, sure, there's the open democracy argument, there's transparency, there's framing the public debate. All of those are something to be said and, you know, might have been a piece of his intention. Another thing that I think is very clear to me is that this outlines basically what he's been doing the past five years, what's on the go, what work needs to be done. And it makes it much harder for the next guy to say, this is all Don Iveson's fault. Right. You know, successive governments love to blame the previous government. But now he's publicly laid it out. This is where my office is. This is everything we're doing. This is the state that I'm leaving the office, passing it on to the next guy. 
Yeah, I think that's super interesting. I would not be surprised if that's the real reason these are public. You mentioned voters aren't going to read this. Boy, do I have a story. I was at the doors. Uh, I was door knocking for Ashley Salvador. And one of the people I knocked on, he made it very clear that he was a Mike Nickel voter. And in his ranting and raving about surplus school sites and about infill and about wanting a smaller city and all that stuff, he mentioned, and you know what, this transition memos, where does that guy get off? No one has ever done this before. You're leaving. You're not running again. You don't get to control the next council like a puppet master. He used the word puppet master. Really? One, didn't expect a voter to ever read this. Two, didn't expect a voter to have opinions on this. You know, maybe we're not giving in the citizens of Edmonton enough credit, Mac. Well, do you know for sure that he read it or did he just read, say, Keith Gerine's column about it and knows about their existence but hasn't actually done anything with them? I don't know that for certain. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I did want to get out of that situation. So I can I imagine you did. Interrogate it very much. Yeah, I mean, this isn't the only thing Don's done this week. Keith Gerine also mentioned in his column about the endorsements that Mayor Iveson has made. He's endorsed three candidates so far, Ann Stevenson in O'Damon, Ashley Salvador in Métis, and Ahmed Nomadic Ali. Yeah, as Keith mentioned in the article, um, Ashley is running in an open ward, but has been involved with the city perpetually for the mm -hmm. past three years. Anne and Ahmed are both running against very contentious incumbents. Uh, Tony Katarina in the case of Anne Stevenson and O'Damon, and John Zadok in the case of Ahmed Nomadic Ali. So, you know, is this a dig against counselors that Don Iveson's not a fan of? Maybe, but I will say Anne Stevenson's a very competent urban planner, and Ahmed Nomadic Ali is a former poet laureate and is black. There's a huge argument to having someone that thoughtful with the diversity that he brings and the lived experience that he brings on council. Are these political cynical endorsements? Maybe. Are they not? Maybe as well. But there was a lot of discussion this week about, is it appropriate for mayor to endorse candidates? And I think probably, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he's outgoing. He's not going to be the mayor. It's kind of weird when candidates who want to be mayor are endorsing other people. It's less weird when you're leaving office. I really don't agree with Keith's take on this. He wrote that it feels, quote, unsettling, perhaps even anti-democratic, uh, when a mayor who tries to choose his or her successor attempts to build a pseudo slate for council, they will no longer be leading, end quote. I mean, he was around, right, when we went from Mandel to Iveson? I mean, there maybe weren't explicit endorsements, but it's not like... Iveson was the golden boy. Yeah, it's not like we had a totally brand new switch of uh, of folks. And even if it wasn't Iveson that won that election, if it was Karen Lee Bavici, for instance, like these were part of Mayor Mandel's slate of candidates, if you could call it that, without being an official slate. So I don't buy that at all. I think it's fine that he's endorsing these candidates. And I would go a little bit further, actually, and say that I like that it's a white man endorsing not other white men. Like he's using his position to try to effect some change on council. I think that's a great thing. One last thing we should mention on the endorsements, I think. Uh, so as you pointed out, two of these endorsements from the mayor are uh, in wards where there are incumbents running. John Zadok shared a picture of Don Iveson and Justin Trudeau and said, I reject the endorsement. Don't know how you reject something you didn't get. And then the other one was a response from Tony Canarita. And you replied and you just said, all due respect, delete your campaign. <laughs> um, Tony Caterina, we won't repeat the tweet right here. It was very vitriolic, very personal. Yeah. And it shows that Tony Caterina doesn't have a real campaign. 
if empty lots could vote, Tony Caterina would be the counselor of O'Damon. Unfortunately, they can't, nor can they contribute meaningfully to our city, and neither can you anymore, sir. So rip your campaign. Let's close it out with a couple uh, municipal rundown items. And I think the first is a self-congratulatory <laughs> municipal podcast item. Uh, last week, we harped on Aaron Paquette for having a bad website with no platform. And if you go to AaronFordene.ca today, that is no longer true. It works. This podcast works. He listened. I'm sure we didn't really have that much to do with it, but good on you, Aaron, finally. Less good on Mike Nickel, who was invited and did not attend the DBA downtown forum and instead hosted a maskless campaign barbecue at the same time. Kudos. Kudos. <laughs> uh, speaking of forums, there was an O'Damon forum that you actually listened to, Mac. Why didn't you take my advice and avoid forums? I know. I also am trying to do the job for you, dear listener. Uh, and it's my ward, so I figured I should listen. Uh, Tony Canarita was invited and was on the marketing materials, but did not show up for that forum. My favorite thing about it, uh, they had microphones with 60 second cutoffs. So at first I thought the feed was just cut out like a zoom broken, but nope, they were just stopping people when they were rambling, which I love. All forums should have that feature. Uh, the thing that stood out to me at this forum was the candidates who are very clearly thoughtful, the people who have put some effort into their policy positions. I'm thinking of Ann Stevenson and Adrian Bruff and Josh Wolchansky. And then you had candidate uh, like Gabrielle Batiste, who definitely, definitely came across in that forum as the populist right-wing candidate. I think I wanted to mention this just because we talked about Cheryl Watson off the top. Gabrielle Batiste is another example of this type of candidate, and you'll see them all across the city. It's very easy in a municipal campaign because all campaigns sound about the same, you know? I want to get value for dollars. I want to build the best city. I want to make sure our neighbors get along. I want to, you know, clean up the River Valley and support it. All of the candidates say roughly the same thing in terms of platitudes. So it's easy to hide as a closet conservative or a closet populist and still court the progressive vote. Gabrielle Baptiste, that's someone we've seen campaigning to the left, but I suspect she's not. Cheryl Watson did the same thing. There are other candidates in other wards. And it's just something to keep an eye on. Really be judicious. Are they parroting platitudes and when you look at a video of them talking do you get skeeved out because to my knowledge i haven't been able to find one of these closet populists that when they talk i don't get a skin crawl <laughs> and that's that's the litmus test here despite all of the issues and the things you can learn about good old gut feeling is still the deciding factor. Still use the taproot uh, matching algorithm, though. <laughs> don't don't discredit all of Matt's quirk. No, you still use it and then go deeper. Ask the candidates about the things they said. What's more deep than actually reading books? And Podpower wants to talk to you about Bookwoman. Bookwoman is a podcast about editing, publishing, and writing Indigenous stories. Three Métis librarians representing nations from across the homeland aim to inspire Indigenous peoples to share their stories in whatever form that they enjoy. Guests include Indigenous storytellers from diverse mediums like podcasting, bur burlesque, books, comics, social media, films, music, and everything in between. You can listen and find out more at bookwomanpodcast.ca. And shout out to the Edmonton Community Foundation for helping us make this pod power. Shout out to Bookwomen. And that's all for this week. We went a little long, but this election campaign has gone so, so much longer. We only have a couple weeks left. Mac, is there two episodes remaining before people vote? There are two regularly scheduled episodes before people vote. A reminder to all our listeners that 
as of Monday, October 4th, you can early vote. Uh, there's one poll per ward. So if you want to really get this out of the way and call it quits, you can vote a full two weeks before election day. But of course, I think the thing you should be most interested in is our ongoing coverage of this joyous thing we call Edmonton Municipal Government. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.